welcome to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General podcast. Uh, Steve is not available this week, so I've got a friend of mine, a guest, uh, Casey. How are you doing today, Casey? Doing fine. How are you tonight, Al? Eh, not too bad. Uh, getting over a cold, so hopefully I don't hack a lung out during the recording here tonight. <laughs> but today for uh, today's topic, we're going to discuss uh, gaming groups and the dynamic of a gaming group, such as how they form, some of the different types of players that uh, we've encountered, and some of the dynamics that can happen in a group. I understand you've been gaming for quite some time. About how long have you been a, a role player? Um, let me think. Probably between 15 and 20 years, depending on when you start officially counting me as a role player. <laughs> oh, okay. So... so so you've probably been in a few different gaming groups uh, during the course of uh, your life as a gamer. How are some of the ways that your gaming groups have formed? Generally speaking, they have formed by, I almost want to call it referral. Um, the, uh, someone knows someone who knows about a good game or a good GM, and uh, the, the word spreads, or sometimes by invitation. Um, I suppose it also depends on the type of game. Um, I have been part of uh, long-running games which were much more open. Uh, for example, there was a uh, there was a LARP actually based out of Oshkosh, which ran for 12 years, hmm. and that was te technically open to the public. We sometimes had strangers show up, um, but generally speaking, in my experience, um, the it is people at within the group who will invite others to join, sometimes bypassing the GM altogether. Yeah, no, I, for me, when I first started gaming back in my middle school years, I just started out with a small group of friends, but when I got into high school, there was a, a flyer at my local hobby store, and mm -hmm. the, there was a person there asking for, you know, looking for people to form a gaming group with, and answered the ad, ended up going with them for came with them for about a good three years or so. Unfortunately, then we all went to college and kind of broke up and went our separate ways. But I said that was a pretty good gaming group. Um, also, with my current gaming groups, it's mm -hmm. been through our local hobby store. And of course, that's how you know I met you at our local brick and mortar store, as they call it, which mm -hmm. uh, was kind of interesting. Because um, as I recall, I you were going to be there to run a game, but no one else was, but the people didn't show up. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you saw my group, which was just starting a new campaign of Marvel superheroes. And you just asked what we were doing and asked if you could join. And of course, was happy to have you at the table and <laughs> it just kind of went from there. So, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've always had a, um, well, I suppose I shouldn't say always. Um, I've grown into a person who is not afraid to approach a table and ask to join. Um, I used ten years ago. I would have been afraid to approach you without an introduction. So I suppose among the variant types of gamers, there's going to be a, an aspect of personal development because there's a wide, wide age range of gamers. I mean, yeah, you do make a good point. I mean, there's a lot of variety in the age range of gamers nowadays. Uh, since role playing has been around for uh, several decades, it's not mm -hmm. unusual to find, you know, older people in their you know, their 40s, their 50s, and, and up, but, you know, it is not unusual to see people who are uh, younger. I mean, I've gamed with people who are young as, about as young as 11 or 12. Definitely the demographics for the gaming 
uh, population are certainly changing. Of course, as there's different groups form, there's different types of players. So mm -hmm. we're going to, for the next part here, we're going to talk about some of the different player types we've encountered. Some of these player types, they're names that have been around for a while. Uh, any old gamers or experienced gamers have probably heard these terms. Others are types of gamers that, you know, we've encountered. They might might not have a quote-unquote official name, but mm -hmm. they're types of gamers you might see out there. So we're going to start with one that everybody loves, and sarcasm, mm -hmm. the, uh, the Munchkin slash Minmaxer slash Power Gamer. Um, any other titles you've heard for this type of player? I haven't heard other titles. Um... Or no, wait, there is one ringing a bell in my mind, but I'll, I'll come back to that later <laughs> if my memory serves. Mm -hmm. Now, I actually, depending on the player, I think that these can be useful within a group. Um, they, the, in my experience, the um, min-maxer gets a lot of their satisfaction about that sense of power, that sense of capability. So the min-maxer is also going to be someone who uh, is directly seeking a challenge, and uh, who who has a player-based urge to prove themselves, as opposed to just saying, this is what my character would do. Mm -hmm. So I find that while they're not useful in every situation, you know, you wouldn't spank a baby with a guided missile, you do have circumstances where a guided missile is exactly what you need. And I've also found that in parties that have at least one min-maxer within them, I can scale up the drama and the threat of the encounters because I know that they're going to pull some ridiculous nonsense out of thin air and um, I don't have to worry as much that everyone's going to die because I decided to throw a dragon at them. Yeah, and um, that's interesting perspective because a lot of people I've played with min-maxing or power gaming is tend to be frowned on a little bit because I guess, in my opinion... It can sometimes be boring to play characters that are, you know, extremely powerful, but, you know, have that, the drawbacks that eh, maybe kind of balance it out. You know, mm -hmm. like, you know, got the person, the fighter who has really high strength and, and constitution, but has the low-cut charisma. Mm -hmm. um, it, again, it depends a certain amount on the player um, and their... their the desire that they're fulfilling by having this character. Um, I would say that, I, I would say that it's kind of looked down on because it's at odds to the idea of uh, role-playing being the focus of the game or the story being the focus of the game as opposed to the mechanics being the focus of the game. So it's, it's a, it kind of hangs a lampshade on we're sitting around a table with, with paper and dice um, by the fact, by the strategy that they're using. So I can see why it um, could be seen as a negative thing. I suppose it could also be seen as an immature playing style because yeah. this is a person who's taking the first handle on the game and learning it as fully as they can before moving on to um, conversation or persuasion or role play. Yeah, one thing though, power gamers can be helpful, I do admit, when you do have those tough encounters where you need someone who you know, can inflict massive damage because you're fighting a dragon or a lich or some other big nasty. Um, I would say the, the other thing is just as long as you are aware of them and work with them, 
Um, I prize flexibility in GMs, both uh, what I what I seek to be in myself, and then what I'll value in another GM. Um, because all of the different types of gamers out there, all of the different habits that a gamer can have, they can all be harmful in their own way and useful in their own way. Um, and in my opinion, a, a GM has a responsibility to bring a good story to the table and to do their best to make sure everyone is having a good time. And the players similarly have a responsibility to uh, do their best to enjoy themselves and take part. Now, the, the way that they choose to take part is partly habit, partly what they've learned. Uh, it's also partly what they're trying to um, get out of it, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, saying that a whole swath of motives or means is just unacceptable, um, once, I, once I decided I was going to try and embrace it and, and actually actively work with it, I found it got to be a lot less of a pain to deal with. Because I wasn't saying, oh, I wish I didn't have to. I was saying, okay, so there's going to be, you know, one out of ten that this is all they do. Okay, let's work with it. Um, the other, uh, the other thing that came up is that by saying that I can't control the min-maxer, but I can change how I react. I feel a lot less like my game is broken when they come up with something, and I feel less like, oh, I spent three hours on that story turn. Because in the end, it's on me to to shift with them, not to force them down my corridor, you know? Yeah. I mean, maybe you've just met a different type of power gamer than I have. I mean, my my experience with power gamer has probably been, you know, with the people who are more like, hey, I'm going to make a kick-ass character and DM, you're going to deal with it. So, But, it again, it is challenges a DM because, yeah, you want to find a way that's going to challenge the entire party but you don't want to single out one player. Um, and you got to be careful because if you make something specifically to match the, the, the power games character, you might have a lot of problems with the people who aren't power gamed. Now, I'm not saying this particular game system is one that's easily power gamed, but mm -hmm. uh, remember the Marvel Superheroes campaign we did mm -hmm. where it was challenging because we had one player in our group, Logan, he was, mm -hmm. the, he was the tank of the group, where mm -hmm. his biggest power was shape-shifting and body armor, where he could turn into, like, a rock or metal form. So his mm -hmm. character was very, very resilient to physical damage. So mm -hmm. I had to be very careful because, you know, he had the highest defense of the party. So if I threw uh, lots of enemies at you that would be able to damage his character... I would run the risk of killing everyone else's character too quickly. So that's where it's kind of challenging as a DM. You got to sometimes find ways to outwit the power gamer. Uh, you know your rules. And that's true. Um, and there is a there is a part of uh, a point of gaming where the power gamer overlaps into the rules lawyer, um, and it becomes less a matter of I'm expressing this desire to be powerful and more this I am I am I'm in control of this character as I want to be in control of the situation. Yep. Nice, I would also nice sorry, transi nice transition. <laughs> Thank you. I was also going to say Logan's actually an excellent example of uh, the motive behind it because I would never have described Logan as a power gamer. Um, oh, yeah. he yeah he set up as a tank. He he tried to achieve one specific thing with his character and the rest didn't matter. But that's because um, he himself 
Logan's a nice kid, but he is not one of the most socially apt people yeah. that the two of us has ever met. And I think it gave him some confidence knowing that there was one thing he would absolutely get right. You know, even if he couldn't do the conversation and he couldn't quite swing, uh, you know, I, he didn't always catch what was happening in the story. There was this one thing and he could do it. And by God, he would get it right. Yes. And, and he did do, he did play the tank well. And I will admit he did have some creative uses for his powers at time. And uh, again, that was just a very memorable campaign. Maybe, you, you know, might do another show about it. Uh, memorable campaign sometime in the future. But I know, uh, yeah, that Marvel one was definitely a memorable one for the uh, everyone involved. And But getting back to the, yeah, the rules lawyer, uh, this is a type of gamer I haven't really encountered too heavily. Um, and usually when I've encountered people who are considered rules lawyers, mm -hmm. they're not, they just want the game to run smoothly. They're mm -hmm. not trying to be a pain in the butt. They're just, like I said, they just think, okay, these are the rules. This is how it's written. This is how we have to play it. Kind of like in chess, you know, if you're playing chess, your di your bishop has to move diagonally. He's not going to be able to move horizontally or vertically. You know, that's mm -hmm. just the way it's done. So what are some of, have you ever encountered a lot of rules lawyers or what have some of your uh, experiences with them been? I've encountered a fair bit, and I have to say this conversation is making me wonder whether um, players in general tend to react to the two of us in a different way, um, which is possible. Um, the, the rules lawyers that I have encountered can be the most exhausting kind of character, because I would say, and character in the sense of this is part of who they are, because um, that sense of... Um, I don't want to say overbearing, but that insistence that they uh, must have the correct answer tends to carry over into other parts of life. Um, in my experience, and I don't know whether this is the life that I've had or perhaps that, uh, you know, being a female GM, have you ever heard the term mansplaining? What term? Um, this is something that's been around on the internet for a little while. Have you ever heard the term mansplaining? Mansplaining? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I haven't. You may have seen it happen, though. Um, it's when a uh, a certain type of guy, um, and it's exactly the rules lawyer tone of voice, will sit you down and try to tell you, lecture you almost, about something that they may or may not actually understand, but by God, you're going to hear it from them, regardless of what you actually know about it. Um, I once uh, commented on... Um, uh, feeling cold with a blood draw, and I had a male nurse sit me down and try to explain that your blood actually flowed through your body. Oh. And I I'm saying that that sort of thing also carries through uh, sometimes, not all the time, uh, to gaming. Um, I would say that of the rules layers that have actually become difficult to manage, there's that same sense of, I know better regardless of the situation. Yeah, and that's one of those things where I would say I've usually seen rules lawyers more in older, more experienced players, which is, of course, understandable because usually your younger players are not going to have a, as much of a grip on the rules. And again, I think a lot of times the younger gamers, they're more, or not necessarily younger, but the less experienced gamers, they're just there for the, you know, the fun. And there's more of a sense of magic or wonderment when you're mm -hmm. first starting out. 
Now that is interesting because I've actually encountered a greater proportion of younger rules lawyers, which makes me wonder if it really isn't a matter of trying to assert some kind of control. Yeah, and speaking in a way of control, another type of uh, gamer, I call them tacticians. These are the people who, well, they try to approach each encounter like a chess game. You know, they mm -hmm. realize that each of their companions has their strengths and weaknesses, and they feel that, well, I should try to direct my uh, my teammates and, you know, we can form the best possible battle plan. Now, mm -hmm. I've seen people do this with varying degrees of success. Um, we, in the Marvel campaign that we talked about earlier, um, I know we had one uh, one player named Michael who the first time he played, he tried to take over kind of as the group's leader. And I think he thought he was being funny, but yeah. it was not a good experience. Yeah, and he, I mean, I can let it go because, again, it was his first time playing Marvel. It wasn't a game that he was used to. Um, but again, he just didn't do it very well. So eventually he came back with a better care, a new character, which worked a little bit better for the rest of the campaign. But what's your experience about people who like to be very tactical with the uh, with the game and approach it, as I said, as a, as a master chess player would approach a chess game? I'm... I'm not sure if a chess game would be the way that I would approach it, but I think I sometimes fall into that habit myself, for good or for ill. Um, when I'm sitting and playing, I'll see a problem and say, oh, here's a way we can solve it together. Um, and I think that uh, when it's when you've got a tactician type in the, in the positive aspect, right? this is a person who uh, can help move the group forward no matter what, the person who... Uh, is able to cut down on the table talk and who is able to pick up the plot hooks and keep things moving. When it's done negatively, it becomes a person who is just kind of bullying the table around and it can kill a game. Um, it's it's hard sometimes to know which way it's going to go and I hope that I never cause problems <laughs> like, yeah. in the game that we did together. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, like I said, I had tactician type players, very much a mixed bag. Sometimes I find they can be extremely helpful, especially when you do have an older gamer and a more experienced gamer. And we're going to, there's a experienced player in a couple of them in my current D&D campaign I'm running. And I'll talk about them later because one of the topics I hope to address later on is going to be, you know, the dynamics between like the younger, less experienced players and the older, mm -hmm. more experienced players. Mm -hmm. But Another type of gamer, I call them the shy one. These are people who usually don't contribute much to the party or discussions. Again, shy one, usually they tend to be new players, but um, so, and it can be kind of hard to really classify them because sometimes they're just playing their character. Other times it might be someone who's new or out of place. They feel out of place. I've noticed that sometimes with newer players in my groups. What about you? I would say when it's a person who is coming newly into an established group that uh, it's almost inevitable that that person will be quiet for at least a session. It takes a very, very outgoing person to overcome the nerves of introducing yourself. Um, I would say also um, it can be... I, I've, I've gamed with a couple of people who were on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes... 
um, that that shyness, like you said, is uh, simply quietness. So, um, in addition to uh, seeing when it's situational, um, like when this person is new, or like when the person is inexperienced with gaming, it can also be good to know when it is really a matter of personality, because I know at least uh, one that I gamed with in college, and I'm, I'm just, as a practice, not going to use names during this conversation unless you bring it up. Um, but one person that I gamed with during college, if we had pushed him to try and come out of his shell more, it would have actually broken the experience for him. Yeah. So, uh, go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I'm, uh, I, I lost my train of thought, so go ahead with what you were doing. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no, it's fine. Um, the, yeah, the the... The main thing I think about the shy people is making sure that I don't accidentally overlook them. Because it can be easy to just keep uh, oiling the squeaky wheel. Um, sometimes I'll even, uh, when I've got more, one or more quiet people at a table, I'll actually write down a question turn route. Like, almost like they enroll initiative to speak. And I will, if I haven't heard from someone in a while, I'll just move down the list. You know, stop. Okay, Joe, what do you want? Stop. Okay. Um, Alice, what are you thinking, you know, and force the interaction to keep somebody from being left out through either nerves or um, social awkwardness. Yeah, and that's where I kind of try to do that too, where I, I try to gently work them into the game, but if I get the impression that this person is just naturally shy or maybe nervous because they're new, again, I don't want to uh, push them. Now, uh, Again, no, you got to be careful sometimes because there are people who might be quiet and shy, but it's because they're playing their character. Mm -hmm. uh, my normal co-host for this show, Steve, he he's known for playing, you know, these very quiet uh, characters. So his group nicknamed him the Silent One. Uh, mm -hmm. One thing that's kind of interesting though is his character. He always has a knack for being able to spot things that are out of place and making mm -hmm. just the right skill check when necessary. So, mm -hmm. yeah, his group always learned that usually when his characters spoke, they were on guard because it meant something was going to happen. <laughs> so, but yeah, definitely one of those types of players you got to be very careful when you're addressing because you don't want, you don't want to push them, especially if they are just a really shy, quiet person. Mm -hmm. And of course, usually the opposite of the shy one is usually the jester, as I like to call him. These are people who are talkative and sometimes can be a disrupt, uh, be a bit disruptive. Um, any Have you had any experience with players like that? Yes. Um, I also uh, consider this to be not just a player trait, but a habit. Um, because almost anybody can step into or out of this, depending on the table and uh, the, the culture of the moment or the culture of the, the group itself. Um, I, the a nice thing about it is it's also one of the easier things to manage because the person who um, is jumping in to make quotes and who is jumping in to get a laugh, um, you can give them validation in other ways. And if you can work that validation into the story, that person can become as great a force to move the plot along as, you know, the tactician, as a power gamer who's heard there's a, you know, challenge over the hill. You can really use these these players to move things forward if you can make it so that instead of currying favor and laughter from the table, they're currying favor and laughter from an NPC. 
Yeah, and one thing about people who uh, tend to be jesters, you know, the talkative type, tend to crack jokes, sometimes it can be annoying. Like an example I've always given is if you're playing a fantasy game and let's say another play, player fails a dexterity check, you know, the jester might swipe in, well, the force is not strong with this one, ha, 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 you know, making those very corny off-the-wall jokes. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it can be you're just role-playing the character. A uh, good example, let's go back to Marvel superheroes. Let's say you're playing, someone's playing Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're familiar with Spider-Man in the comic books, he will wisecrack in the middle of a fight. So, yeah, if you are if you have someone who is a jester, so to speak, who does like playing these very talkative, uh, wise, you know, wisecracking characters, you mm -hmm. want to make sure that they're playing a character that's going to be effective for them. I've also found that it's a good tactic to uh, just sort of clearly express your expectation in terms of the tone, whether it's of the day, like maybe this is going to be a serious game, or maybe in general it, you know, it bugs. Like I actually, um, last session, had to introduce an XP penalty. Um, there was a running joke that started to become a real disruption, and I mean a real disruption. So it became, okay, the next person who says this, uh, will be docked a point. The person after that who says it will be docked two points. The person who says it after that will be docked four points, and so on exponentially. Um, and it came up five times. I think they were pushing me to see whether I would hold to it or whether I was just going to throw up my hands. And um, once they realized that, nope, I will exponentially remove XP from you as you continue this, the joke kind of died. It wasn't as funny, and it lost momentum. Yeah, and we, one of my old gaming groups, we used to have something kind of similar where a game master would penalize you. The the uh, joke that became kind of the running joke in our campaign is, let's say we got to a section where we were kind of stalling, um, and then we finally caught the obvious clue that the game master was throwing at us. One of our lines was, grab the adventure hook, take two points of damage, which, again, kind of funny the first time. A little less funny the second time, third time and later, yeah, it just kind of got annoying. And that's where the game master was like, okay, uh, you, I'm docking you experience points because you used that stupid uh, grab the adventure hook uh, quote. Mm -hmm. Now, just a moment. <clears throat> okay. Now the... Uh, next type of game where we're going to talk about, this is one that I personally think is kind of rare. Uh, mm -hmm. I've labeled these people as the ego gamer. They mm -hmm. make powerful characters to usually to make themselves feel better than others. So I kind of differentiate them from like the power gamers and min-maxers because it, when you're a power gamer, it is possible to still be a team player. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if you're the tank of the party, you're going to have no problems wading right into combat and getting in on the front lines of battle. Mm -hmm. Now, the ego gamer, usually they, they're kind of a special breed because the ego gamer is usually someone who's playing both a player character and who's game mastering at the same time. So usually their character is the one that never seems to take the big hits. You know, if you're fighting a dragon and an orc, the orc will go after his character while the dragon tackles everyone else, no matter what the situation. Um, they usually happen to find the best items. And as far as character statistics, 
for some reason, they usually seem to have the best statistics. Like in uh, D&D, nothing lower than a 16. Gee, how did that happen? Mm. So is this the type of gamer that you've encountered very often? or? Well, I mentioned earlier that in my opinion, the, the jester type was really more of a habit. I would say the eagle gamer is really more of a motive. A motive. Like this is, when I said earlier that players will do something uh, with a character to fulfill some need that they, you know, either do or don't know that they have, you know, uh, whether it's somebody seeking those laughs and that um, that validation through the jesting or uh, seeking that sense of uh, certainty and accomplishment like Logan with the one thing that he could definitely do. Um, the Eagle Gamer, I would say it seems rare because it's actually a motive expressed in a number of different ways. Now, I haven't personally encountered DMs that run that way because I have actively avoided them. Um, but... Uh, I would say, again, this is something that can be a tr tricky to manage. Um, I, Especially if they're the game master because, yeah, if they're the one in charge... If they're I'll, the game master, the game is toxic. I, If I realize that's happening, I generally make my excuses. Um, walk away because, from the table. Yeah, you can, either, you can either find a way to address it, but an ego gamer who has found their way into the DM's chair, they're not, they're not playing... They're not playing a game with the people at the table. They're playing a game using the game at the, ta the people at the table. Does that make sense? Yeah, because, I mean, I... One thing that's interesting, there were two guys I played with back in, like, the middle middle school, high school era that mm -hmm. did fit this whole ego gamer image. Mm -hmm. However, as I've got older, I've ran into fewer people like that. And to some extent, I think maybe it's an age thing where... When you're first playing the game, you're first learning it, yeah, you want to be powerful. You want to be this great hero. Whereas you start to mature and gain experience as a gamer, you tend to see past those things. You realize that having a character that can swing massive damage and, you know, inflict huge amounts of damage with spells, whatever, just isn't as important. You know, it becomes more important to play the game, work with your friends, have some fun. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I would say, and I'm sorry, Al, I just lost my train of thought. You're going to have to edit me here. That's okay. Give me a moment for the train of thought to be to, to get back on the rail. Okay. <laughs> sorry about this. Um, okay. I would say uh, it's true that special snowflake syndrome is kind of a symptom of youth. Um, it's something you do sort of slowly grow out of, ideally. Um, but again, I'd say with ego, it really does come down to um, seeking that sense of powerfulness. If you can identify it, it's relatively easy to mitigate, even though it can still be kind of effort to manage. You have to put in time. I had an ego gamer um, uh, in a game, I would say about, oh my goodness, nine years ago already. Um, but once I had identified that this person... Um, who is seeking a powerful stats and pushing back on rules and doing all of these things, once I realized that they were just trying to be in charge, they were just trying to have that importance, um, I gave him a cobbled flunky. And this cobbled flunky would follow him around and praise into the skies and just lick boots, just <laughs> the most obsequious nonsense. And whether it was... Um, and I don't know... Um, exactly what made it work because this was a gamble on my part 
um, it, it solved the problem like that. All of a sudden, he was sitting calmly, respectfully. Everything went forward smoothly. I didn't have to fight on every detail because uh, whenever, um, whenever uh, he started to push back, all I did was dial up the kobold a couple of notches. And maybe it was seen as commentary, or maybe it was seen as just a way to solve the problem. But for some reason, seeing this person needs to feel important and responding with, here is a, a little hopping fictional creature that can make you feel incredibly important, just totally took care of it, thank goodness. Hmm, neat. That's an interesting uh, way to deal with it. I said I've never, I've never had a chance to use any sort of approach like that. And I think mostly because, well, as I was saying, the ego gamers I encountered, they were back when I was a player, they were the game masters. So it was kind of harder to uh, really rein in on them. But that's a, that's a good idea. Um, mm -hmm. Now, another type of gamer, this is something where I admit it's hard to do, and that's metagaming. This mm -hmm. is where uh, you act on player knowledge as opposed to character knowledge. And again, it can be hard to avoid especially when you're an experienced gamer like you and I. Um, like, for example, uh, trying to think of, well, let's take a monster like the Tarrasque. Mm -hmm. Now, do you, as a player, do you know how to defeat a Tarrasque? I, I believe so. You have to go in and get out. Um, it can't be attacked from outside of its body. Is that right? Well, with I'm not sure how it works in the later editions of D&D, but in second edition... And first edition, you had to reduce it to negative 30 hit points, and then you had to wish it dead. You know, so that was something that was kind of tricky because how many people would think, okay, if you've got a wish spell, to wish a monster dead? Mm -hmm. And a re there was an adventure where I did the final encounter was the Tarrasque. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of interesting because none of the players in the, the, the group actually knew about the whole wishing the Tarrasque dead. And mm. since none of them had a wish spell, what I did is, well, they were fighting the Tarrasque in the ruins, and I put in a freight jar in there. Mm -hmm. So part of the encounter is once they found the jar and they got the freight, they had to haggle with the freight in order for it to uh, cooperate with them. And mm -hmm. the freight, of course, tricked them into uh, wasting two of the wishes in order for them to find out that okay, we have to use the final wish to finally defeat the monster. Mm -hmm. um, another situation where it can be tough, uh, I'm sure you've probably heard of the infamous Tomb of Horrors, right? Yes. Well, uh, for those who may not have be familiar with the adventure, uh, the end of Tomb of Horrors is a demi-lich, which is not affected by most attacks. And a few months ago, I ran my gaming group through Tomb of Horrors. And one of my more experienced players, he said it was tricky for him because he was trying not to metagame. As mm -hmm. a player, he knew what you had to do to defeat the Tarrasque. Mm -hmm. As a character, though, his character didn't have any knowledge, so he did some trial and error, and eventually they did defeat the... Did I say Tarrasque before? Yes. I think, okay, the Demi-Lich, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he did some trial and error. Eventually, they did defeat the Demi-Lich at the end of Tomb of Horrors. Mm -hmm. And we only lost four players during that adventure. So does that mean I failed at running Tomb of, Tomb of Horrors? That one adventure specifically, yes. Tomb of, Hero <laughs> Tomb of Horrors, in my opinion, is one that you walk up with a stack of character sheets. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, hey, maybe my players just got lucky and didn't make dumb decisions. But 
possible. So I would say metagaming, in my opinion, again, it's not exactly a type, it's more a habit. Um, and it's and its negative aspect, which is the most common one, it is a huge pain because um, because suddenly it gets harder to trick the players or make the character they put drama into the story because they're trying to anticipate everything. Um, it makes it harder to make the fights really challenging because it becomes less a matter of um, uh, let's adventure together and more let's solve this specific thing in a way that we already know. It's more it's button pushing, you know? Um, and it's positive nature. When it can be controlled or used minimally, I think it can be helpful um, because there are sometimes times when you really do want to communicate something to your players. And, yeah. you know, as a little bit of metagaming, like a little bit of salt, is, is a positive thing that improves the whole situation, but too much metagaming, like too much salt, makes it totally inedible. Yeah, and one of the things I've noticed some of my players try to get around metagaming is they ask if they can make like a skill check of some kind or if they're anticipating a battle they might ask if there's some way they can research it so that way yeah they know that there's they know that there's something they have to do but they're trying to make their character figure it out in game and i think that's a good way to handle it because yeah, you want to act on that knowledge, but at least you're trying to make it so that your character logically has that information. Mm -hmm. Now, next type of gamer, you brought up this when we were discussing uh, the outline for this topic. Uh, the person who can't walk away from a puzzle. Yes, and this I have encountered enough to actually see it as a type. And I found it interesting that you weren't aware of this habit. And I think this may be one of the one in a gender divide. Um, and I don't know why. Perhaps it's something in the way we're socialized because I've encountered a number of women gamers that fit this type. I, I mean, and I've, I've run two, um, I, I've run two all women games and I've, by nature of, of being a female gamer, I tend, I mean, we tend to stick together to a certain extent just because, you know, you can refer, uh, you, you have that sense of, okay, she's already in this game, so it's going to be a reasonably you know, friendly game to be part of. Um, you, you generally find two more often than you find one. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, and especially the more women you have at the table, the more you see this type. And I don't know, again, I don't know if it's socialization. I don't know if it's um, something in how we're taught to address situations. But I have seen games almost completely torpedoed by this style of gaming or this need to to get it figured out to get the answer um i was in a game uh oh god this was like 1999 um two two young women held the entire party essentially hostage in a single room on a single question for literally two and a half hours of real wow. time because they they couldn't give up they couldn't and the GM who was running the game didn't hadn't hadn't figured out how to be flexible in his um, way of managing this, because um, in my experience addressing it from the other side, because this in that LARP this became me. Um, I, I played a character who was um, 
who was uh, involved in some of the mysterious things going on behind the scenes. And I wound up um, having her go insane with obsession over these puzzles in game, which meant that I got to, you know, freak out about it as a person. <laughs> but um, as a GM, if you ever encounter it, there's there's three strategies that you can take. The first is find a way to stop time and um, address the puzzles separately and uh, do like a flash forward, flashback, Rashomon thing. That gives the players time to think about it and it gives the other characters a reason to continue on with the story. It doesn't halt everything. The second is guiding the solution. This can be a delicate way of doing it because you know, if you just give the answer, it becomes unsatisfying. They haven't uh, solved it. They've just, they've failed to solve it, frankly. Um, you have to you have to give just enough to push them over the, the mental block that's keeping them from finishing it. Um, the last thing, the last solution is, you know, Alexander's solution, chopping through the Gordian knot. Um, when you realize this is going to become a two-hour question, um, you pull in the, and then a man walked in with a gun situation, and boom, <laughs> the the puzzle is gone because now we have a new problem. Um, again, I have encountered this probably as often as I have encountered a min-maxer. Yeah, because I, like I said, I haven't encountered this type of player too much. I mean, I do have a young lady in my group, my current D&D group, who, she doesn't, she loves the puzzle parts of adventures. Like when we were in Tomb of Horrors, you know, there, there's riddles in there. And I recently took them on another dungeon that I tried to make this, I tried to make this dungeon similar to Tomb of Horrors where there are, you know, riddles that you have to solve. And if you don't solve them, you could get killed instantly or fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she, she really enjoyed the puzzle parts of it. So mm -hmm. I can see how, yeah, it is possible to, you have to be careful dealing with it because, you know, I, I could see she clearly wanted to solve these riddles. Mm -hmm. um, but I tried to manage the game in such a way that she could still work on those riddles while the rest of the party continued on. So that way it wasn't holding anything up. And quite frankly, uh, both her and the rest of the group did a really good job at handling that. The last type of gamer that I've noticed is these are the social gamers. And this is where I think a lot of people fall in. These are the people who, they use games as a way to socialize and hang out with people. Mm -hmm. They take the game seriously, but not too seriously. Mm -hmm. um, have you ever, is that, would you say that you probably encountered a lot of people like that? I would, I have encountered a lot of people who are using games that way. Again, that's something that I would say falls into a motive rather than a type, because the social gamer used to be a different kind. And the social gamer might become a different kind in the future. It's just that right now, what they're really seeking from the game is that sense of contact and that sense of, you know, the conversation. Um, the social gamer has a lot of danger of turning into the jester. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. My personal style has always been to try and figure out the whys. You know, why is the person doing this as the, as the player, you know? Because if, if I've got a mix of people at the table... And they all have different things they want out of this. And, you know, the first player really just wants to get out of the house because he doesn't have a lot of other things going on in his life and it makes him feel better to be around people. Okay, we can fulfill that need. Mm -hmm. if, the, if the next person at the table is um, trying to feel 
you know, important and, and like they're doing something that's really accomplishing life. You know, if, if I get to know them as people just enough to get the motivations behind it, then suddenly the stories get a lot more satisfying and the stories get a lot more interesting because I know to focus on, okay, second player, let that player um, drive the part of the story where they actually fix a problem in the, the fantasy country. Let the person who um, is seeking uh, social interaction um, become the person who's the, the face of the party and the talker. You know, let the person who is seeking one thing that they can absolutely get right, give them that at least once a session. You know, here's the, okay, you've got a hammer, here's a nail, great. Um, once you find that, the, the players, um, the players uh, fight back a lot less because they're getting what they want. They're getting what they need out of the game. Um, and that frees you up as the GM to do more of what you want to do, to get out the cool concept, to get out the story. And it doesn't become an antagonistic thing. It becomes something where everybody is working together to accomplish different goals using the same thing. Yeah, and that's one of the things I think social gamers are helpful at. Again, they do make good, they're good at pushing the story along. And I've also found that people that do tend to be more social gamers usually be very, are very good uh, diplomats or negotiators for the party. Now, we, we've talked about quite a few different types of, uh, of, of gamers here, and as you brought up, which I think is a good observation, is that some of these are types, some of these are behaviors. Um, mm -hmm. And gender, what role do you think gender plays in it? Because I know you mentioned that usually with uh, female gamers, they sometimes have different behaviors they do than, than male gamers. Um, mm -hmm. And this is a, you know, something that you would know more about than I do. Like one thing I've noticed with female gamers when they're when they're new, they usually shy away from warrior type characters. They usually mm. prefer doing the more like the wizard or you know the thief uh, or the bard of the party. Uh, what's your take on that? Socialization. Mm -hmm. um, you you have a long habit of time of we don't confront and we don't um, you know you don't get into arguments. Um, I mean, even if you look at um, even if you look at uh, young women who have grown up aggressively, there are there are a fair number of female bullies. It's social bullying. It's pushing um, in in quiet ways as opposed to you know direct aggression. You're you're scolded for direct aggression for so long that it becomes hard to do it even in a fantasy setting. That's one reason I think why um, a lot of young people, a lot of young women that um, try out, you know, that experiment with like a warrior type will be like all on gung-ho constantly. Who am I going to fight this minute? Mm -hmm. You know, because it's, it's like, um, it's this new context where you can start to explore that and you don't know what to do with it because you've been told your whole life, stop, don't. Yeah, and I um, think, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think that's possibly one reason why the puzzle effect happens because here's something that you can throw yourself at and get totally invested in and care about, and no one's going to criticize you for caring about this and wanting to solve it. You know, they might criticize you for getting aggressive and, you know, getting in a fight, but they're not going to criticize you for solving this problem. Oh, then you'll be clever, you know. Um, and I think you make. I would good... also. Oh, Go ahead. Sorry. Yes, I think you made a good point because you were saying before that, um, and I didn't. I didn't think about this. That totally didn't occur to me that just the way boys and girls are raised where, uh, you know, guys, okay, when we grow up, okay, what toys do we play with? You know, we play with, 
you know, the G.I. Joe figures, Star Wars figures, Transformers, um, you know, these toys that do tend to have more of a focus on uh, violence or action. Whereas, you know, girls, they tend to play more with like, you know, the My Little Pony or, you know, the dolls where they're, would you say it's fair to say that women tend to be raised more, you know, towards that nurturing role where men or boys tend to be raised more towards that, hoo-yah, you know, macho, macho, macho type role? Depending on the family. I know that it can, um, it, it can be encouraged one way or the other. Um, unexpected, not, uh, not as obvious as what you were describing. Like, for example, when I was a uh, kid, when I was in grade school, I really wanted to be a stage musician, uh, magician. I actually uh, was actively discouraged from doing this, both by teachers and by my mom, because it wouldn't be ladylike. And um, I think that these things kind of um, play out uh, in unexpected ways and show up in unexpected ways through the course of your life. And one of the great virtues of gaming and being able to role play is that you can try out things that you may not be allowed to or that you may not have had the opportunity to in a normal social context. And that's a good point, because, yeah, the, uh, like you mentioned, playing a wizard. Yeah, it's something that you wouldn't be able to do in real life, so it's kind of fun to be able to pretend you're doing that. Now, uh, we've been recording for a while here, so we're probably ending in just a moment here, but uh, mm -hmm. let's talk, let's go, talk briefly about group interactions. Like with new players and experienced players, what are some of the interactions you've usually seen with, uh, with those both young and old players? Um, with new players and experienced players, the main thing to manage is that the experienced players don't steamroller the new ones. Um, make sure that the new ones are actually making choices and make it a safe space when you're at the table to make mistakes. To not to not make it something where you're going to be uh, shamed or scolded if you choose something that's either not optimal from the min-maxer's min perspective, or perhaps something that the person who knows about how to kill a Tarrasque would not do, you know? Because, um, I, I don't know, sometimes I think um, the mistakes, and when you're trying things and not trying to be perfect, can make for the most memorable role-playing experiences. Yeah, and one of the things I find is always helpful, as in my current group, uh, we, I've got two... Uh, experienced gentlemen who've been playing for many years and one of the greatest things I think they bring to the table is they try to encourage the younger less experienced players to try different ways to solve problems mm -hmm. um, you know new ways to use their spells and uh, try to be a little more uh, smart about things as opposed to just rushing in and attacking there's a guy who plays a half-lead thief in our party and when they were fighting the dragon, you know, he advised them, okay, spread out, don't stay in one area, you know, and then gave some other advice, which was very helpful. They like to teach mm -hmm. players that, you know, you don't have to just run in there and, you know, attack things with your sword. You can try different ways of solving the problem. One last thing to talk about for this, uh, group size. So, mm -hmm. what, in your opinion, what do you think is the optimal group size? Um, the shorter the session, the smaller the group. Um, the, uh, the larger the group, the trickier to manage. Um, yeah. I, I would say minimum size, in my opinion, is three players plus one DM. I, too much fewer, and it starts to get, um, 
I don't want to say like claustrophobic, but things don't, there's not as much variety in the interaction and it can get kind of exhausting. Um, too many players and it becomes really hard to get everybody to have individually a satisfying experience with the game. Yeah, and, um, I, go ahead. Yeah, and I can agree with that. I mean, for me, it's, I have to say usually about five to seven is the optimal size, but a lot of times I think it really depends on group chemistry. Because, um, like, again, the Marvel group that we've referred to several times, one of the things I enjoyed so much about that, that campaign is you guys had really good group chemistry, mm -hmm. um, where usually it was about five to six players, but you guys did a really good job working as a team. And that's mm -hmm. one thing that made it a very memorable game. I would agree. I would agree. One of the best things about that game was the way, um, was the way it felt to be part of the group. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's some kind of chemistry you can have uh, both with strangers and with people you already know. Um, like I said, most of the time when I join a group um, or, or work to create a group, it's through that kind of intra-friend referral. But um, one of the nice things about uh, DMing at the gaming shop has been, you know, that, that sort of randomization. I think it's um, both have their challenges. When people are more familiar with each other, you run the risk of a lot more table talk, a lot more metagaming. Um, but you have the strength of being able to speak almost in shorthand sometimes by referencing things that the group already knows. Um, yep. When you're dealing with people that you don't know outside of the game, um, I think it's sort of like an actor who makes sure that people don't know a lot about their personal life, it gets easier to role play and it gets easier to... Um, take each situation as it comes, but it also is more work to kind of understand what the person is seeking out of the game. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, with especially with if you have a group where no one really knows each other, sometimes it does take a few sessions for them to really kind of, like I said, get comfortable working with each other. And yeah, small group, you run the risk of people not interacting with each other enough, but, uh, or you, you know, you have to sometimes prod them along but yeah, large group, it, well, you have more diversity. One of the problems there is sometimes you have to wait too long to do things, and it can be hard to be heard. Mm -hmm. But, well, that's about, I think, all we have to say about this topic for now. I'm sure, of course, it could go on and maybe will in a future episode. But, uh, Casey, I'd like to thank you for joining me on my uh, podcast today. So for uh, the listeners... Again, thanks again for joining. I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, please feel free to visit my website, poigamestudio.com, and uh, also look up Point of Insanity Game Studio on Facebook. And uh, have a good evening or morning or afternoon or whatever it is, wherever you are in. Happy gaming.